We know the news can be relentless, and it's hard to keep up. On Your World Tonight, it's our mission to catch you up in less than 30 minutes. When news breaks, our reporters are there, across Canada and around the world. We bring you context and analysis and sort out what's real and what's relevant. I'm Susan Bonner. I'm Tom Harrington. I'm Stephanie Skanderis. We host Your World Tonight. New episodes every night, seven days a week. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey there. Thank you for calling 1-900-PODCAST-PLAYLIST. Press 1 for the show. Press 2 for a personalized podcast recommendation. Or press 3 to find your next romantic partner. Charges may apply. In the 80s, 1-900 numbers were a gateway to another world people like Hulk Hogan. Hey dudes, Hulk Hogan's running wild on the WCW, and I want to tell you about it right now. The Crypt Keeper. Call 1-900-246-CRYPT and plunge into my hallowed halls of horror. Or even your future wife. You can find love and romance right here on the telephone on the Romance Hotline. We're just one dial away, and about $3 a minute, of course. But what's a couple of extra bucks on the phone bill if it meant chatting with your favorite superstars, psychics, or potential spouses? This is Podcast Playlist. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. On today's show, we're exploring podcasts through a theme, and that theme is numbers. So let's start with the history of 1-900 numbers. Here's the podcast, 20,000 Hertz with more. In the late 80s and the early 90s, 900 numbers were everywhere. They usually cost between $1 and $4 a minute, which they would charge to your phone bill. The idea might seem cheesy now, but at the time, it was revolutionary. All of a sudden, anyone with a landline could call in and hear from psychics, celebrities, musicians, wrestlers, and even fictional characters. I am He-Man. Call She-Ra and me at 1-900-909-2233. We'll journey to distant worlds, explore the universe, and probably battle Skeletor along the way, huh? With how much these lines charged, it's no surprise that kids like Dallas and me got in big trouble for calling 900 numbers. When our parents got the phone bill, let's just say we paid a heavy price per minute. I was not busted until the phone bill came in. And then it was, who has been calling this random 900 number, and it has a $27 charge, which (laughs) felt like, you know, a million dollars to like an eight-year-old. Yeah, that's a couple piggy banks worth of coins in there. With 900 numbers, there were lots of ways to rack up your phone bill. For instance, there was a TV station called The Box that was basically a jukebox for music videos. You'd call a 900 number and request a video for $2 a song. One listener remembers calling it a lot. You'd be super pumped because you'd call that number and see your request pop up on the television. $2 a song, you don't really even think about it as a teenager. And then a month later, you know, you're, you're getting uh, your butt kicked by your parents for ringing up the phone bill with 900 number of calls. Another listener remembers hearing from one of these angry parents. Back in the early 1990s, I was an elementary teacher in Southern California. And one day the father of a fifth grade boy came in very angry, very upset. His son had racked up almost $400 in 900 number charges. 
that night after I got home, I called the number and I was greeted with a pre-recorded message of this very breathy woman telling the story of, today I went to a new restaurant and I saw a waitress with the most beautiful eyes. I wasn't in her section, but I watched her all through my lunch. I listened for four minutes and then hung up. I can see how that very quickly could have amounted to $400 for this child. As the phone bills got higher and higher, the phone companies got flooded with calls from angry customers. The phone companies were tired of getting the calls from the wives or the husbands about, oh, what is this charge on my telephone bill of $22? My son Jimmy would never do that. Well, Jimmy did and the husband did. Soon enough, the Federal Communications Commission stepped in. As it would happen, the FCC and the FTC came in and they made rules, the Consumer Protection Act, which is still in effect, that started in 1993. And that was really invented to stop the abuse of 900 numbers. And an industry that was totally unregulated suddenly became totally overregulated to the point where the consumer could call in and request a chargeback. A chargeback is where you dispute a charge on your card. If it's accepted, the money is then refunded back to your account. They had to show no proof whatsoever to get the charge back. We would have people call us and say, oh, my cat dialed the number. (coughs) Or stupid things like this that you know just could not possibly have been true. And they would get a charge back and they were essentially stealing. So you think you made all this money on all these calls until nobody was paying for the calls. And the carriers didn't want anything to do with it. The carriers just said, This is more trouble than it's worth. We never want to deal with this again. So that's what shut down the 900 numbers. Of course, not everyone who requested a chargeback was a scammer. Because while plenty of these lines were legitimate, others were pretty questionable. There were some programs that would guarantee you a place in a major motion picture if you called the 900 number. And that was very deceiving because what they would offer you is a chance to be in a stadium when an airplane flyover would occur and they'd take your picture. So you got your face in a movie in the middle of a huge crowd of people who also got duped. Did they deliver what they said? Yes, but it wasn't really what the consumer thought they were going to get. Other deceptions had more serious consequences. Call the Psychic Hotline at 1-900-535-LIVE and talk one-on-one with an authentic psychic astrologer. The Psychic Hotline is not a computer, not a tape. You'll get good advice about love and relationships, romance, even money in your career. With the psychic lines, one of the reasons they were shut down was they were really appealing to a demographic that didn't have the money to do this because they were promised that they were going to make a lot of money and that they were going to win the lottery and they were going to find a rich husband. They're kind of preying on people's vulnerabilities when they need money. Good luck in money and love could be just a phone call away. $3 per minute must be 18 for entertainment only unlimited talk time. Because of this, psychic lines tended to have the most chargebacks of all. 
chargebacks became the thing that brought the industry down because especially on programs like psychics, people would develop problems with psychic calls and they would call them to the point where they couldn't pay their bill. The psychic lines had that addictive quality to them. I don't know what to do today until I know what's going to happen, so I have to call my psychic. and She'll tell me if my boyfriend's cheating on me or if I'm going to make a lot of money today, and there was a lot of that. Shady practices, deceptive advertising, addictive qualities, these all played a part in fracturing the 900 number business. But what ultimately brought the industry to its knees was the Internet. Because the Internet could do things that a phone number never could. A very important part of dating is the physical attraction. And, you know, that's usually why you go up and talk to somebody, right? We didn't have that on the phone. The internet, you were able to show a picture, and that's a pretty big part of the dating process. So the internet is really what killed the industry. And there was another problem that made 900 numbers totally incompatible with the modern age. One of the negatives of 900 was they were only accessible from landline phones. They never in the United States and Canada made them accessible from mobile phones. Today, 900 numbers are totally defunct in the U.S. They don't exist in the United States at all. That all ended about six years ago. But they do still exist in Canada. They exist in Europe. But, you know, they're a small part of what they once were. That was 20,000 Hertz. It's hosted by Dallas Taylor. This episode was written and produced by Doug Frazier and featured interviews with Bob Bentz and David Wood. Eighteen wheels, hundreds of miles, and one sole driver. How many miles of isolation does it take to change a person? Day in and day out, long-haul truckers are alone in the cabs of their trucks, with nothing but the radio and a view out the windshield to keep them company. It's expected the bill will outline. Round to third, over to second. Hours of solo driving can deeply change the way they think about themselves and the world around them. This experience is even more unique for truck drivers who are women. NPR's Rough Translation is a podcast that tells stories from around the world. And this episode follows two truckers, Brandy, a trans woman with dreams of becoming a chef, and Jess, a single mother who turned to trucking to flee an abusive relationship. Take a listen to what they discovered during the isolation of their daily drives. Trucking, as you might know, has its own vocabulary, its own lexicon of phrases. Whoop and ride, sailboat race, grabbing gears, hammer down, dragging an anchor, four-wheeler. But there's one trucker term with special meaning to both Brandy and Jess. Something called windshield time. Are you familiar with that term, windshield time? Absolutely. Can you explain to me what windshield time is? That's how, how much time that you're sitting behind the wheel looking out that windshield and seeing what's out there in the world. The same way my daughter used the windshield to solve her problems in the math world. I'm not using a dry erase marker on the windshield, but I am using the windshield. I'm counting the miles, I'm counting the cars. Just giving you time to think and settle down and sort through our day and our thought process. Can you 
tell me what sorts of things you would think about in these long stretches of solitude? Oh my gosh, I've I've built houses in my mind. <laughs> I've I've cooked food. I've fixed everything from like world hunger to every problem in trucking. You know, pick apart a song. You know, listen to the chords of a song. How would I play that on a guitar? You can accomplish quite a bit by just thinking about all those things. The book Semi-Queer, which inspired this episode, devotes a lot of analysis to windshield time. Its author, Anne Belay, introduced us to both Jess and Brandy. They're two of the dozens of women drivers she interviewed for the book, many of whom told her that windshield time is not just driving time. It's a space for self-contemplation and even interchange. Every mile we do helps to clear up whatever is running around in our minds. Jess felt this. So it gives you that time to decide, are you going to continue on this path or are you going to pick a new path? Every mile out there is different from your last mile, so... Every time you see a new mile, that's a new opportunity. And Brandy says she noticed the change in her because she used to get really mad at cars. Man, this, this car's irritating me or that car's irritating me or blah, blah, blah. But now some four-wheeler would cut her off with no blinker. She found herself contemplating human nature instead of shouting. You have a guy cut in front of you and you're like, okay, did I do something wrong? Or, you know, what can I do to change that? So you start to... You start to watch people and you see their reactions and then you learn their body movements and and all these things. They just start to just all kind of fall into place. And Brandy also started to watch herself differently, notice her own pattern of reactions. Instead of having all these defensive shields up, I could let them down, you know. I could think the thoughts I wanted to think. She thought about her attitude toward other people. Oh, yeah, I was a jerk. <laughs> you know, I, even when I cooked, I was, a, I was a jerk in the kitchen. She thought about her mother, a beautician, and the row of wigs in her mother's salon. How nice it might feel to wear a wig like that. I knew that I had a lot of femininity in my being my whole life, but I never really knew how to put it all together. And a thought first pondered through the windshield of a truck was then turned over and considered and formulated into the beginnings of a plan. I'd go home and I'd get dressed and I'd stay behind in my apartment. And it's like, man, I got to get out of here. I got to step outside my door and I want to go out into the world. And uh, I was terrified to. According to Anne Belay, author of Semi Queer, the trucking cab is actually fairly well situated for exploring one's gender identity. First, because you're spending so much time alone, not having to deal with people looking at you. The CB radio garbles voices, making assumptions about gender harder to pin down. And rest stop bathrooms are often single occupancy. So this is the the thought process that you can think of things when you're driving. I start thinking to myself, you know, how how would I accomplish my mission? permission to step outside her door dressed up. So I, uh, (laughs) 
I thought about it all week long and what I was going to do. It's like, okay, I'm going to get dressed up and I'm going to go down to the convenience store. So I drove clear across town to go to the 7-Eleven. Buy a bottle of whiskey. And I didn't think I was going to get carded. <laughs> so I pull out my ID and the guy looks at it and he looks at me and he looks at my ID. He goes, okay. And I get the bottle and I, and my whole, my whole trip home, I was shaking so bad, you know, it was so cool and it was so exciting. I opened that door and it's like I stepped out into that vortex. The cab of a truck may be a place of gender exploration, but the trucking industry can be a harsh place for women, especially trans women. I would go home on the weekends and dress up and people caught wind of it at work. My uh, co-driver confronted me, you know, Mrs. Hey, I... You know, I know what you're doing on the weekends. I said, well, okay, first of all, what I do on the weekends with my time is no business of yours. Well, he started telling people, you know, hey, my co-driver's dressing up, blah, blah, blah. So it was getting, it was starting to really rage through work that I was dressing up as a woman on the weekends and going out. Brandy had to wonder, could she be her true self? and at the same time stay safely in this job. Jess, meanwhile, was doing her own self-examination and realizing how isolated she'd become. So I started to look around and and try and meet, you know, other women. She wasn't just going to see other women truckers and nod and pass them by. She spent years doing that. Now she became known as someone who would stop, offer advice. And I had gotten a reputation of, you know, If you have any issues here, go to her and she can help point you in the right direction of who to talk to for what. And and that was just so that I could get the interaction and the socialization that I think everybody requires not to be considered a hermit. Hey, everyone. It's Jess from the Board of Directors of Real Women in Trucking. And we are here at the Mid-America Truck Show, Louisville, Kentucky. In 2021, after more than a decade on the road, Jess became a board member of Real Women in Trucking. It's an activist group trying to make long-haul trucking safer and better for all women. We've signed up some new members. Connecting with other women truckers has made her feel less lonely on the road. But it hasn't made it easier to adjust to life at home. Like, I honestly, I have a hard time functioning when I'm not in my truck. Um... I don't know how to grocery shop anymore. I can't handle that experience anymore, the going into a, a big store like that. So what what about it can't you handle? I don't know if it's just the chaos of everything. Um we've learned over the years, you know, with what we have access to is the truck stop. So you go in, you have your one choice, you know, I think having that many options is kind of overwhelming. I say that I'm now wild, feral, and undomesticated because I've kind of lost all of those normal daily routines that most people do. Jess had chosen trucking as a means of untethering herself from her old life, putting as many miles as possible between her and her ex. But trucking had also propelled her into a new, solitary orbit. When I would go home on home time, I would... I really wouldn't tell people so that nobody would come over. And she did not know 
how she was going to make her re-entry. The thought of going back to settle down, that actually gives me more anxiety than being out on the road all the time. One of my uncles would be like, well, you never stop when you're in town and, you know, you can you can park at the McDonald's. I've seen a truck in there. Well, that's a McDonald's truck delivering product to McDonald's. I can't just pull in and park there. I, I think a lot of people don't understand living at your job hmm. or constantly being on the move. So you, you lose that common ground, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the world really resonates right now or many people in the world can resonate with what you're saying in a way that maybe they couldn't two years ago catching up to the life that you've been exploring for a lot longer absolutely I think I was ahead of the curve on it from NPR that was rough translation the show is hosted by Gregory Warner. Their team also includes Adelina Lancianese and Bruce Oster. That episode featured stories from Jess Graham and Brandy Diamond. What podcast is in your top five? Email us at podcastplaylist at cbc.ca. We've all entertained the fantasy at least once. You buy a ticket on a whim fumble through your pocket for a coin, you carefully scratch off the numbers, and it's a winner. Then comes the mansion, the Lamborghini, the private island off the coast of Bali. Of course, the key word here is fantasy. In reality, your odds of winning the lottery are about as high as your odds of getting hit by a meteor or becoming president. Sorry, everybody. But what if you could guarantee a win? If the lottery is based on finding the right ticket, then why not just buy all of them? Here's NPR's Planet Money with the story of Stefan Mandel, the man who gamed the lottery. So it's 1992 okay. in Virginia, and there is a big lottery jackpot for the time, $27 million. They pull the numbers, a winner, and at first there's nobody who comes forward. But there are reports that there was something that was maybe going on before the lottery drawing. Something suspicious. It starts to dawn on them that something is up. Something is different about this lottery drawing. right? So first of all, there's these reports from around town. People had been going into different grocery stores, buying 50,000 tickets at a time in different combinations. And they put it all together and they realize that someone or some people have pulled off what is the dream of, of all lottery players. They took the luck out of lottery. They bought every single combination of numbers possible and guaranteed themselves a win. And this is totally perplexing to the people who run the lottery system, like Ken Thorson, head of the Virginia Lottery. This is him on TV shortly after. I really never would have imagined that anybody would have ever wanted to try to buy it out. It never happened in the United States. But the very idea of spending over $7 million to buy all the shares in the lottery just seems preposterous. Because think of what it would take. I mean, you need investment of $7 million, and then you have to actually go and buy that many lottery tickets. You're going to be buying tickets 24 hours a day. You need to fill out each different ticket. You need to keep track of where each ticket went so that when you win, you can find the winning ticket. And yet somebody pulled it off. Yes. His name is Stefan Mandel. And I did a little research, poked around, and I found him living on a tropical island in the South Pacific. Of course he is. In Vanuatu. Of course. I made a phone call, I got his cell phone, and I rang him up. Hello? Hello. Hi, is this Stefan Mandel? Yeah. 
I told him I'm a reporter and that I'm doing a story about lotteries. Are you willing to talk to me about it for the radio? <laughs> that story died a long time ago. As soon as I started asking him questions, he just could not stop. He lit up because he's proud that he pulled this off. And he says, listen, Alex, that Virginia thing, it took him decades and decades to perfect his system to get to that level. The story starts in Romania. In Romania. Yeah, in, in the late 1950s. And Stefan Mandel is working at some job he doesn't really like at an industrial mining company. And he's got a young wife, young kids, and he just desperately wants out of the country. He needs money to do it, and he starts looking at the lottery. Well, that was, that was the only way that I could get some serious money quickly. I mean, you know, I was earning at the time uh, something like 360 lei a month, which was the equivalent of a good pair of shoes. <laughs> you know? But he doesn't just go out and buy random tickets. He's, he's a pretty natural math whiz. He goes to the library and he starts reading math paper after math paper after math paper, and he comes up with a formula for buying blocks of tickets that he thinks should guarantee him a prize. Because he doesn't have enough money to buy every number. Not yet. Okay, he pulls in three friends. They take their money together. They still don't have enough money to buy every combination, but they figure they can guarantee themselves second prize. We won seventy-two thousand seven hundred and eighty-three lei, which was the equivalent of about eighteen years of salaries. All right, big score. That was on your first try. Yeah. Be honest. Was that luck? Was that luck? It was luck. Okay. Well, a bit of uh, quite a bit of luck. Because he was playing for second prize, but he happened to win first prize. Nice. Right? So he takes the money and he leaves Romania, finally brings his family, and they end up in Australia. And this is where he takes his lottery plan to the next level. Okay? He finds more investors. He raises more money. And he, he, this is where he solves what is really the obstacle to this whole crazy scheme. Right. Normally, when you want to pick out your own numbers for the lottery, you go to the corner store and you ask for that little form with the numbers on it, and, and you fill out each little form. Yeah, with a pencil, it takes forever. It takes yeah. a while. Like, right. yeah. But he says, no, 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 no. I am not going to get caught up in that. I'm going to automate it. So he sets up a room filled with printers and a computer program that is going to spit out those forms already filled out with every possible combination. It's going to fill out the forms for him. At high speed. So we actually took the paper, analyzed the chemical composition of the paper, ink and all that sort of stuff, and we printed out the slips ready with the combinations on them. Wait, so was this legal to have a computer fill out your slips for you? It, it was legal when he did it, and he turned lottery winning into a business for a while. In, in, in Australia, I won 12 times. <laughs> and then so I, I kind of got, got up their noses a bit and... Uh, so they felt that they had to do something about it, which was ridiculous. They changed the laws. First, they passed a law that said no one person can buy every combination of lottery which tickets. Wise, yeah. It's just a literally do not do that again law. And so then he broke it up into 50 different people who each bought one fiftieth of the uh, numbers. And so he keeps winning. And eventually, they make enough sufficient laws that prevent him from doing it again. But this did not put Stefan out of business. No, he started looking even bigger. He starts looking to the U.S. And he looks to a couple different states. He starts doing the calculations again. Because you have to find a place where the jackpot is big enough to justify all this printing and all this effort. Right. So he finds Virginia. And in Virginia, there are 7.1 million combinations of lottery tickets. Uh -huh. And he has to wait until the jackpot is, he figures, 25 million or above, just to make sure he turns a, a profit if there's a split pot. And then he waits. 
he sets up his whole operation for when the time is right. You know, that's something that you can do in one day. It took us, uh, I can't remember, two months or something, three months. To print out the, the numbers? Yeah, of course. They printed out all 7.1 million tickets in Australia, paid $60,000 to ship them to the U.S., negotiated bulk buys with grocery stores all around Virginia about how they could send cashier's checks to buy tens of thousands of lottery tickets. I mean, it's like a bank heist how complicated this was. And I imagine on the night of the Virginia lottery, he did not have the same feeling that all of us have right now awaiting the numbers to come out for the big Powerball. I mean, this guy knew he had it in the bag. Yeah, when I asked him, were you were you scared? Were you worried? Were you excited? He was just like, nah, I have all the tickets. I knew that I would win one first prize, six second prizes, 132 third prizes, and thousands minor prizes. 27 million plus all those minor prizes. Wow. Thrown in. <laughs> there is a little dispute about whether or not he really bought all of these tickets or whether he came pretty close because there were a few stores who just said, oh my God, this is too much. You have to stop coming in with all these tickets in the middle of his buying spree. But he swears to me that he found workarounds for all of that. He had backup plans. And in the end, he did buy all the tickets. So did he have any advice for anyone who was thinking of doing this on the scale of, of Powerball, these giant, like, billion-dollar prizes that are coming out now? It cannot be done anymore. He says, you cannot do it. The number of combinations have grown too much. You wouldn't be able to print the tickets. You wouldn't be able to buy them in time. And you probably couldn't even do the math right to figure it out without making a mistake. That was NPR's Planet Money. The episode was hosted by Robert Smith and Stacey Vanek-Smith. It was produced by Jess Jang and Nick Fountain. It featured guest Stefan Mandel. If you want more podcast recommendations, follow us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. And if you love the show, please share it with a friend. Canadians care about what's happening in the world. And in just 10 minutes, World Report can help you stay on top of it all. Join me, Marcia Young. And me, John Northcott, to get caught up on what was breaking when you went to bed and the stories that still matter in the morning. Our CBC News reporters will tell you about the people trying to make change. The political movements catching fire. And the cultural moments going viral. Find World Report wherever you get your podcasts. Start your day with us. There are a few givens when you're crafting an online dating profile. Your name, your most alluring photo, your height, plus a few extra inches, and of course, your age. We've all heard the phrase, age is just a number. But as Linda Grosser approached her 60th birthday, she felt that age was all that was defining her. And her experiences with online dating certainly didn't help. I'm walking down Newberry Street on my lunch break, and there's this older woman just ahead of me. And then I stop, and I'm gazing in the window, and she stops. And as I look at her reflection, I realize it's me. (laughs) Oh, my God, when did I get so old? I mean, I was always the baby in the family. So whenever I'd get to one of those decade milestone birthdays, and you think about what does that number mean and where am I in my life? Anyway, later that night, I am sitting in my third floor apartment just feeling completely sorry for myself. I'm divorced. 
I have a dent in one breast from cancer surgery. And I am full of self-judgment. Where am I in my life? And who is going to want me? But I did not want to be alone. So I had no choice. When I put up my online profile, I lied. I took four years off of my life, off off of my age. (laughs) And then I really got out there. I learned how to swing dance. I learned how to sail. I read a lot of Pema Chodron. She's this Buddhist nun. I am lovable. I am good enough. But oh my God, dating in midlife. First there's George. I really liked his profile. And then I get to the bottom. Message me if you are under 40. And then there's Lyle. Lyle was tall, sexy. We had something going. And then I find out he's dead broke, and he starts to stalk me. (laughs) And Stuart, we talk. We decide to meet. I go into Panera's. Oh, crap. That is Stuart over there, but he looks so old. And, of course, I justified my lie because my pictures were current. Well, this was my dating life. It happened like 16 times, except there was only one stalker. I was disillusioned. I did not like lying, but I was not ready to be honest. So I took my profile down, and I say, I'm just going to go to meetups. You don't have to give your age. You just show up. And that was working really fine until it was the fall, and I, for the first time ever, I am approaching a dreaded milestone birthday. And I realize, Linda, like it or not, on November 28th, you are going to be 60. Oh, God. And I'm thinking, well, if I have to be 60, I am going to go out in style and have a really big party. So now I'm at my friend Deborah's. I'm in her foyer, and I am surrounded by 25 of my most beloved family and friends. I see Jerry and Richard in their tuxedos because I wanted the attire to be fancy. And Janet and Mike are standing by the punch bowl where they squeezed 50 limes to make my favorite drink, Cosmopolitans. And my kids, Taylor and Spencer, they made a dance mix. They brought the weed. The outpouring of love I was walking on air And it was, it was just incredible, incredible Because that party changed me And I decided that that number, my age Just did not define me And I let go of my own ageism I'm back at home And I say, okay, I'm ready for the truth. I grip my teeth, I put my profile back on, and I put on my true age. I go out to a meetup that night in um, Democracy House in Harvard Square. It was a Latin band. I met a guy, I think his name was Mark, and we chatted, and I liked him. He didn't ask for my number. I was disappointed. Okay, no big deal. I go home. Next morning, now I'm getting these emails from the dating app. And I open this one profile. Guy is cute. He's 63. He dances. He sails. 
And now I'm looking. He looks kind of familiar. Oh, my God. This is Mark, the guy from last night at the meetup. So I read his message. Dear Linda, I was really glad to find and read your profile this morning. When we met last night, (laughs) when we met last night, I thought you were too young for me. (laughs) Well, I knew this 60-year-old body was going to be just fine. And I was going to give that Mark man a chance. (laughs) Thank you. From PRX, that was the Moth Radio Hour. This episode was hosted by Jennifer Hickson. Their team also includes Jay Allison. That story was told live by Linda Grosser. If you're late once, it's a mistake. Twice, you could have sworn you checked the time before you left. Three times, you reset every clock in your house. But no matter how closely you watch the time, you're always late. When this happened to Joel Gein, he felt like he was experiencing a glitch in the matrix. No matter how many times he reset his clocks, they were never quite right. As his sense of time got more and more jumbled, he started to think that someone or something had it out for him. Here's Snap Judgment with this true story. I have a Seiko watch that my father gave me for my 18th birthday. Nothing too fancy. It was in my nightstand desk drawer. I set it by the alarm clock on my dresser. What I noticed was the campus flow didn't make sense. It's a busy campus. There are tens of thousands of students when school is in full session. You're going to have crowds of people moving back and forth between buildings. And those movements tend to correspond with the top of the hour. And it seemed a little bit off. At times when it should have been crowded, it wasn't. And when I thought it should have been quiet, it was crowded. Nothing was quite the way it should be. There was an errand that I needed to run on campus. There was a metered parking spot right by the campus building I needed to go to. They would only enforce the meters after 5 p.m. because they didn't want students trying to park overnight. I parked there. I checked my watch. I had plenty of time. I did my appointment and came back. And I had a parking ticket. I just set my watch this morning. It was 4.57 or something like that. I looked at the ticket, and the ticket said it was 5.09 p.m. I thought, I'm going to protest this ticket. This is so unfair. I'm a poor student. I can't pay this. I don't remember what the fine was, $40 or something. I can't pay $40 just because they're being greedy and giving me tickets that I don't deserve. I angrily went back to my apartment and called the parking office. said, hey, you gave me a parking ticket at the wrong time. You guys are setting your clocks ahead on your parking ticket riders. She said, no, our clocks synchronize to an atomic clock twice a day, so you misread your watch. I said, no, I carefully read my watch and I just set it. She said, then all your clocks are wrong. I thought, 
Maybe one of my clocks was wrong, but all of them? I was friends with the couple across the hall, and his name was Manoj. So I went across the hall, knocked on his door, and chatted with Manoj. And from where I was standing, I could see one of his clocks, and I could see that his clock matched my clock. I really don't know what's what's going on. My wife said, well, let's get online, go look up the correct time and reset all the clocks because you got a parking ticket, you know, you big buffoon, you got a parking ticket. So I did. I went online and checked and sure enough, all of my clocks were about 17 minutes behind. So I reset all my clocks. I had an alarm clock, a oven clock, and a microwave clock. What a relief, now I know what the problem is. My clocks are off, I'll reset them and then everything will be fine. I think that was a Friday. Monday morning, I'm feeling pretty confident. And I missed the bus, again. My emotions were shifting from annoyance and frustration to fear and suspicion. I was feeling like the world was conspiring against me somehow, but I had no idea how. It makes me think of watching the show The Office, where Jim pranks Dwight. And he does stuff like changing the weight of his phone handset or slightly moving his desk a little bit. But to change somebody's clocks every day is a pretty major prank. I just couldn't think of who would be doing this and how they would be getting into my apartment. And it even crossed my mind at one point, like, is my wife doing this? But that's just, that's just not her. That's not the kind of prank she would play. And it's just running through my head, what is wrong? What is going on? I sat on the couch, looked out the window, and I got up and I shut the curtains, and I sat back down to contemplate my own sanity for a few minutes. My mind was spinning, trying to fit all the pieces together. Okay, last week, I was late every day. And then I got a parking ticket, and, and that told me with, in no uncertain terms that I was operating on a slightly different time than everybody else because the parking clocks were correct, and the parking meter lady, when I called in to complain about the ticket, said, all of your clocks must be wrong. I checked, and they were wrong resetting my clocks, thinking I had solved it, realizing I hadn't, sitting in my apartment at my wit's end, feeling shut off from the whole world and wondering, is this my life now? Maybe the world is too confusing for me. Maybe I can't operate effectively. That was a very lonely moment. Everything in the world looked suspicious. Some of the work I did in the military was psychological work. I was moving towards a particular career path, field intelligence, which is a lot uglier than it sounds. So if you want to upset somebody, and if you want to completely brainwash them into new patterns, then what you have to do is adjust subtly things that they don't realize are being adjusted. So when I was training people in the military, and, and I went through this myself, they would actually mess with the length of days. 
And then when I was training people, I did that too. And you get to where if you wake somebody up and it's dark and you feed them breakfast, they assume it's morning. I had no idea who or what or why or even how, but it felt like somebody was doing this to me. I felt like I was living through a glitch in the matrix. I felt like the system had hiccuped and I was the casualty. Or the equally terrifying possibility is I'm going crazy. Something's wrong with my brain and I'm the only one who knows it. When I talked to my wife about it, I don't recall telling her, hey, I think there's something wrong with me. It's too scary to say it out loud when you think it might be true. We were newlyweds, too. <laughs> That's not an announcement you want to make to your lovely young bride. It just didn't seem like a very fair thing to bring her into until I had a little more data. I was standing at my back patio, and I was looking up the hill towards campus, and then I started thinking, it's a mile from here to campus, and why would I be different from campus? Is there a space-time phenomena right here in my apartment specifically? And then I suddenly realized all of my clocks are plugged into the wall. That was the aha moment. That was the ray of hope. I got online and got on the uh, website and was like, okay, who the heck can I call? So I get this number and I call this guy who normally never has a student call him because he's a maintenance guy. I think the guy's name was Paul. I live in student housing on the east side of campus at this intersection. Am I on a different electrical grid than the rest of campus? And he said, oh, yeah, actually you are. You're on, we call it B grid. You're separate. The rest of campus and most of the other housing is on A grid. I'm sounding like an emotionally disturbed circus of an individual trying to explain that something was wrong with time and electricity and my life was messed up and can you do anything about this parking ticket, please? He's like, why are you calling to tell me this? Why am I having to listen to this person have this breakdown? He said, I think you need to see somebody. Like, I'm not the person you should be talking to about this. And then I kind of yelled at him, no, you don't understand. All of my clocks that are plugged into the wall are slowing down. There's this long silence, and he goes, holy sh... He started explaining to me, and I could barely follow, but the power's pulsing by the outlet. You're getting what's called an alternating current. The pulses are supposed to match a certain frequency, and if that frequency's off, then if you've got the digital clock plugged into the wall, it's giving the clock a false sense of how quickly time is passing, which meant all of my clocks were slowing down. And because I was on that separate grid from everybody else, then it was affecting me and the very few people in my little building and not affecting most other people. It was that flood of relief, that warm flood of relief that, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be okay. I don't live in a broken world. Not broken in the way I thought it was. It has plenty of other problems, but there wasn't a space-time glitch in my apartment. 
it was fixed more or less immediately within 24 hours my clocks weren't off anymore but you better believe I I didn't rely exclusively on plugged in uh, digital clocks anymore Snap Judgment is hosted by Glenn Washington this episode was produced by Ann Ford and featured the story of Joel Gein you might have strong feelings about math I love it if love includes a sense of dread and heart palpitations and a math tutor who told a 15-year-old me after a year of trying to get me to understand algebra that I was very smart but terrible at math. But math itself is more emotional than it lets on. No, math doesn't get upset when you hate on it. But logic and feelings are more connected than you might think. Dr. Eugenia Cheng is a renowned abstract mathematician, educator, author, speaker, and concert pianist. Her work focuses on making math accessible. In this clip from the podcast Ologies, Dr. Chang discusses how math and empathy go hand in hand. Do you surf or eat or paint or eat paint or golf or wear clothes? Math is in the tides. It's in the temperature gauges in your oven, putting angles, Rubik's cubes, hair braids, fabric knits, and lasagna yields. So we all have stuff that gives us butterflies, just nauseated with happiness. And there is a load of friendly and helpful and benign and dazzling math involved. And sometimes, depending on where the person is coming from, when I say that math helps me empathize with other people, that can be really mind-blowing because that is not something that is often presented in math class, I think. Yeah, how does it help you empathize? There's two ways, I think. First of all, it's a technique for understanding how arguments are structured. If I want to try and understand somebody who has a completely opposed point of view from mine, then I can do it by understanding where their argument is coming from. Mm -hmm. Because it's always coming from somewhere. And it's never going to help if we just sit there and go, oh, that person's just not being logical. Their point of view has come from somewhere. And one way to empathize with other people is to understand where their point of view has come from. So being in a math mindset primes your brain for taking something complex and going a step back and breaking it down through logic. How does one get from there to here? It doesn't mean that we're supporting it and it doesn't mean that we are claiming it's good, but we are just understanding where it came from, from their point of view. Abstract mathematics also helps because it's a process of seeing patterns and making analogies between different situations. And so at a basic level, if you say 2 plus 3 equals 5, what you're really saying is that any time you take two objects and another three objects, as long as they don't kind of spontaneously combust or coalesce, you will end up with five objects. And Mm -hmm. that's a pattern that when we teach arithmetic to small children, we show them doing that with objects, physical objects, over and over again until they see the pattern forming in front of their eyes. And that's really a way, I think, to access empathy with people who have differing opinions from us because it's about finding an analogy between our situation and theirs. So between you and the guy who just flipped you off in the Trader Joe's parking lot, there must be a common denominator. 
And so it can be quite a far-fetched analogy, but because abstract mathematics is really about seeing deep patterns where the surface looks completely different, but if you strip away enough details, you get down to something that's the same underneath. I can do that with people who I really disagree with by just stripping away so many details and finding some kind of some kind of analogy, even if the topic is completely different, thinking about some situation in which I have experienced something that is even remotely abstractly similar. So perhaps where everybody is disagreeing with me about something and getting angry with me for thinking something, and it's not going to help me change my mind. So for example, if we think about people who don't believe in vaccines and all the ways that people kind of get angry with them to try and get them to believe in vaccines, and then if I think about a situation where a lot of people are getting angry with me and want me to believe something, then I can see that that isn't going to help me change my mind. And so that kind of, that kind of abstraction and analogy helps me understand why people take the positions that they take. On that note, and stay with me, there was something about this chat and Eugenia's book that reminded me of therapy, of cognitive behavioral therapy. It was funny because I was reading your book thinking about how much math must give you kind of an edge into understanding your own brain and other people's brains by saying, okay, everybody hates me. No one's texting me back today. Is that true? Does everyone hate you? What's the logic? <laughs> right. What is my reason for thinking this? Exactly. And the thing is that I absolutely don't always use logic over feelings. I actually do the opposite. I always ob observe that feelings are correct. That's it. Feelings are always true as a basic starting point. But sometimes there are other things going on as well. And so I've noticed for myself, for example, sometimes when I'm feeling terrible because some bad things have happened to me and then they, I think about them too much, they go around my head and then I feel terrible. And sometimes I think to myself, I know intellectually, because I have done cognitive behavioral therapy, I know that if I just go to bed, I will feel better in the morning. And you know what <laughs> happens after that is that I don't want to do it because I don't want to just go to sleep and feel better in the morning. So then I might say, well, that's not logical. And, uh, but no, I think, no, that is a true feeling. I truly feel this. Okay, now why am I feeling this? And then I realize it's because it seems like cheating. <laughs> I, I don't want I, it then it will feel like it will feel like my feelings aren't being validated if if I can just go to sleep and they'll go away <laughs> so true that was ologies hosted by Allie Ward the team also includes Susan Hale and Mercedes Maitland that episode featured an interview with Dr. Eugenia Chang and that's it for Podcast Playlist this week. If you want to hear more about any of these shows, you can find more information on our website at cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. Podcast Playlist is Eileen Yamamoto, Kelsey Cueva, and Julian Uzielli, with technical support from Emily Chiarvezio. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Don't forget to call that 1-900 number. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.